0: Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity, Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid
1: Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have a special guest, Andrew Phillips who's with the Electric Power Research Initiative, known as EPRI, where he's Vice President of Transmission and Distribution Infrastructure. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Marty. And
0: based in North Carolina. Is that right, Andrew? Well, that's, that's correct. I'm based in North Carolina. It's a beautiful sunny day, but pretty cold. It's down in the 30 degrees for us. So for us, that's a cold thing. And if, like me, you're enjoying
1: his accent, it's because he's a native of South Africa. That is correct. I'm from the deep south. I'm south of the, of the equator. So let's get at it. The reason I'm very pleased to have you as a guest today is the infrastructure spending bill that's been approved by the government is going to be dedicating $62 billion uh, to clean energy infrastructure. And you sit at a, a position at EPRI where you have your finger on the pulse of all the research that's going on for improving the transmission grid. What do you think is in the scope of possible um, revolutionary developments from this investment? Just give us your first read and then we'll drill down into some of the details.
0: Marty, there's, there's a lot of exciting things that can be done to improve the resiliency and reliability of the transmission grid. And, you know, it it varies all the way from looking at installing um, DC lines and DC converter stations that will improve the reliability but also um, the controllability of the grid. But also we have the opportunity um, to build a lot of new transmission lines and not build them to the same specs and standards that we used in the 80s and the 70s, but to think of new ways of doing it that have higher power flow higher reliability, and, and, are, and are more compatible with the environment and more compatible with the public. And so there are lots of opportunities from controlling the power to building new transmission assets that, are, that, that, that sit right in front of us that we should take advantage of.
1: Now, at EPRI, you lead the uh, Transmission Sector Council, which, uh, as I understand it, is a group of 70-odd transmission companies from around the world. Their executives sit with you and brainstorm on these and the other projects. And you also are responsible for about $56 million of research activities at EPRI tied to T&D. Talk to us a little bit about what the transmission companies you are working with see as possible from this infrastructure spend and how your work at R&D at EPRI is going to inform what investments
0: are made. Marty, I think the executive C. the large push towards decarbonization and the goals that have been set, to us, set for us to achieve that transmission and distribution infrastructure is vital. And, and the executives can see that they, not only do they have to um, build an enormous amount of new transmission um, to meet the decarbonization goals, but they have to keep the existing transmission just as reliable um, as it's been for the past. And in the past. At the same time, they also see um, that society is becoming increasingly dependent on electricity. You know, you can think about digitization, you can think about electric vehicles. And that it's possible that the reliance on on transmission and distribution is going to increase and the the requirements for, for, for reliability are going to increase. And so we have moved, I think, from managing when speaking to the executives maybe five, 10 years ago. They were really just worried about operating the grid as they had it, doing it in a cost-effective way, and they've realised it's everything has shifted to actually a large, significant challenge: how to keep the existing stuff reliable and at the same time build a lot of new assets that can meet can meet our nation's goals. And doing those two things at the same time are very cha- are very challenging. So, um, it's an exciting time for all of us. I think so. Part
1: of the ambitions of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law and the 62000000000 billion I've referenced is, uh, according to a statement put out shortly thereafter by the Department of Energy, to expand transmission by 60% by 2030. That seems like a lot of transmission. Uh, and if it doesn't seem like a lot, they also say possibly triple
0: transmission by 2050. What, what's going on here? Yeah, well, you know, to integrate all of these low carbon resources and to allow for electrification, we need the transmission system and it's and we need to expand it exponentially almost. For me, that 60% is huge. And so when we start thinking about doing that, we have to think about new tools that are in our toolbox. And we can't just think about one solution. All right. We have to think about all of them. We need to think about how we can build new transmission lines. And and when we're thinking about that, public acceptance and getting the rights of way and the access is going to be absolutely vital. We also need to think about how do we design new transmission lines that are more increased power flow on the new transmission lines. But then we have to look at the existing transmission and say, can we upgrade it? Can we
1: uprate it? Andrew, wouldn't that be the low-hanging fruit? Because citing involves plowing through virgin territory, r- upgrading, you've got the line sighted ready. Should that be the first effort? Um, I
0: think you have to do them in parallel first. And the reason is it takes so long to site and it takes so long to design a new line with high power flow that we need to start that today. Actually, we should have started it five years ago. You know, the saying is when, you know, when should you plant an oak tree? You know, 25 years ago or right now? And so we've got to do it right now. But I agree with you that at the same time, we need to look at increasing the power flow of existing lines. And when we do that, we, I would, we, we shouldn't think about just one method. There, there, there are actually four or five methods that we can think about using. Um, I find if you'd be okay with me listing the Marty, that would be okay. You know, the, the one that's talked about a lot is dynamic ratings or ambient adjusted ratings. So that is adjusting the current in the line based on the ambient temperature or based on the ambient conditions. That can get you very marginal increases. You know, some days it may even reduce, but you can get maybe 15, 30%. But there are other opportunities like can we increase the voltage of our lines and at the same time you know, keep the reliability the same. Those lines we had were designed in the 60s and 70s based on every research actually around the world. But they've got a lot of extra safety margin or I would call it fat in them that we can use today to increase the voltage of the lines, let's say from 230 to 345 kV with minimal adjustment, increasing the power flow significantly. And so we need to think about that as an option. Um, we also should think about taking existing lines and moving them from AC to DC. There is possibilities, depending on how you do it and the voltage level, that you can double the power flow down the line by converting it from AC to DC. Now, the converter stations really expensive, but you have the land probably there already. You don't have to get the entire right of way and acquire that and go through all the public hearings. So thinking about that, and then finally, which is maybe a little, um, sometimes people would say, heck no, um, would be, can we use our existing right of ways and put underground transmission lines or I'll call it overhead above ground, underground transmission lines, You know, above the ground um, along those rights of way. Traditionally, we don't want to do that, right? Um, because we say, well, we don't want the one line to interact with the other. But we can make that happen and, 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 and through engineering, um, address those. Can you clarify on that? You're saying put underground
1: under existing overhead transmission?
0: Yeah. So you've got an existing right-of-way. It's got an overhead line on it. Could we increase the power flow by on the ground, all right, putting a cable, not digging a hole and putting a cable, but on pedestals or, or, or just above or just below the ground, put an underground cable? Right on, on on the right of way. Maybe a DC cable along this lens. Is there any technical challenges to that? Or, yeah, well, yeah, there there are, there are quite a few actually. Um, one of them is the interaction between the the overhead line and the underground line. If if let's say a lightning strike hits the overhead line, that's a big antenna. Will the currents flow into the underground line? Will they cause the underground line to fail? You know, that would be one challenge. Um, another challenge is the interaction with of corrosion. You know, one thinks of it as being a minor thing, but the pipes that the cable is in um, can start corroding the soil and corrode the overhead line and induce currents. So that would be a an, another challenge um, for us to, to deal with. But these are all just engineering challenges, you know. Another challenge, by the way, would be um, workers saying, well, I need to get to the overhead line and now I'm going to have this thing on the right of way. That's going to be in the way, you know, I've, my truck, I can't park my truck here or, uh, you know, to get access. But these are all just engineering challenges that with thought and and investment, we can overcome.
1: So um, there's a lot of expenditure going on by the industry, it always has been. According to the latest data from the EEI, utilities are spending about $140 billion a year on capital expenditure. About a third of that, or $46 billion, goes into distribution, and about a, a fifth, or $29 billion, goes into transmission. Um, you put that money alongside this $62 billion, is it going to be a game-changer to have this infusion of federal money? Or do we have to worry that the uh, transmission companies are going to cut back some of their own spending because of the federal dollars flowing in?
0: Well that's a that's a really um really interesting insightful question um that I actually haven't thought that much about. Um I I, I don't think so. I, I I think we 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 are not gonna be limited by money. Is money is no longer gonna be the limiting factor. It's gonna be supply chain, workforce, and permitting. Those are gonna be the three things. You you know, if everybody's building at the same time, and just remember that not only has the U.S. got a low carbon goal that has to build transmission, but every other country in the world has to do it, um, the, the supply chain to provide transformers, insulators, structures is going to be strained. So let's go through the three one by one. Supply chain.
1: Can we control it within the United States? How dependent are we on foreign producers?
0: We are I would say on the transmission line side, I don't think we're that constrained um, from the overhead lines being the insulators, the conductors. In terms of the manufacturers are in the US, they're manufacturing devices, they'll have to ramp up their production, but it's not like we don't have the expertise or the, or the production facilities already in place. Um, I think the biggest limitation most probably is gonna be the ter- what I call the terminal equipment, the transformers, all right, the circuit breakers um, and and, may, and the power electronics for if we're going to put DC in, where most of those are internationally based.
1: Is there an opportunity here for EPRI, the industry, the uh, Department of Energy to spur more domestic U.S. production of these critical components? Oh,
0: absolutely. And it, and it makes the supply chain more robust and us being a far more resilient country. My point of view, if we, if we have a large pandemic and we can't ship things from one place to another place, right? Okay, we become far more resilient when we've got our transformers manufactured in the United States. It's a huge lift to do that, though, Marty. It's it's, it's, it's not trivial. Does that make sense to, to do? Mm-hmm. Now, the workers
1: we are getting closer to full employment in this country, will their workers be there? Will the linemen be there? Will There's a massive 60% expansion of, of the grid, uh, is going to create a lot of new jobs. Any estimates
0: of how many and uh, where do we get those workers? I don't think we have got a, a feeling yet of how many workers. And, I, you know, there may be somebody starting to work on it and publishing results, but I, I think it's because it's going to be very dependent on what type of assets we're going to put in where. But I would say the challenge that we see is when we look at our utility workforce, a significant portion of the field workforce is getting older or, you know, are getting closer to retirement. So it's, so it's not just taking what with the existing workforce, but we're going to have a significant amount of tr- attrition coming up. Also that, as you said, we're getting close, close to full employment and um, the types of jobs of being in the field and constructing things is maybe not as attractive as doing AI, um, you know, data programming or something. So So, you know, making it an attractive field um, that, that, that the available workforce wants to go to, and at the same time ad- addressing attrition, and then the last part would be, you know, the, the way that we have traditionally taught utility personnel is through experience. You know, we may do a lot of training, but in the end, you become an expert from becoming just a, a regular Joe on a on a line crew to one day becoming a journeyman. That's done by by just working, you know, over over five ten years. And we are going to have to accelerate the speed at which we bring people up to speed and make them very competent. And not only on the workforce, but on the engineering force. So accelerating
1: that speed goes hand in hand with the third question, which is the permitting challenge. Yes. Does the industry see an opportunity to do a major PR campaign to, to prepare the public that, that this is not just business as usual? We're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with a massive infusion of federal dollars. We're dealing with an interest in transforming how our grid works by having more points of production, more transmission, uh, excuse me, more um, generation of wind and solar and increased hydro. It's gonna be a much more multivalent grid. Do we have to explain this to the public so that things like opposition to permitting maybe get, get,
0: to an extent, nipped in the bud? Um, you know, Marty, that's a little bit out of EPRI's realm, you know, from being a you know fact-based science, um, non-for-profit organization. But I, but I will say some of the things that I hear is, w- one of the challenges with transmission specifically is the places that you need to get permitting don't necessarily get benefited by the transmission. So, you know, if, if there's a wind farm, you know, in upstate New York and the transmission line has to go go through the whole of New York to make it to New York City. The beneficiaries are the people with the wind farm at the one end. And let's say, you know, the you know, suburbia at the other end, or the load center at the other end. The people that feel they have the transmission line that have to go over their, their land, all right, or or maybe not even over their own land. They've got to see just you know, see this transmission line as they drive to work every day or sit on their back porch don't necessarily themselves see the benefit of it it's benefiting others and I, I, I've heard that you know that is one of the challenges that you have in in, in trying to convince people because you're not convincing them for their direct benefit. The, the explanation has to be it's better for the planet and, mm-hmm. and that's a really it's, it's a, quite a tough sell so but uh, you know that's really out of Epri's realm is you know is public being on the public policy side I guess.
1: Right, but you're an eloquent and engaged expert, so I wanted to elicit your opinion. And I'm going to ask you another question, which is climate change has uh, put increased uh, pressure on grid reliance. So I was down in New Orleans visiting family when Hurricane Ida hit and uh, subsequently learned that a lot of, of the lines built for night, for specs to withstand 90-mile-an-hour winds we suddenly vulnerable when there are 150 mile an hour, gusts. Yes. Given the research going on in EPRI, how close are we to getting where we need to, to harden the grid
0: against increased violent weather events? Well, maybe I'll just describe an, an effort we're launching at the moment, and then maybe hopefully you answer, your, answer your question. You know, we realize that transmission lines that we build today will stay in service for 80 years. And in some cases, we have ones in upstate New York that are 100 years old, right? And so we need to think about when we build them today, what is the spec that we use to build that line to that is for, that has to work in 2050, 2060, even, even later than that? And, and so in the past, what we would do is we'd look at 100 years worth of data behind us and we would say, well, 100 years, we'd have one failure. You know, we'd work it out that way. The past is not a good predictor of the future at the moment, all right? We know the climate is changing and we're expecting far more extreme events. And so we have started um, an, an, an initiative, which is how do you take all of that extreme weather data that's been predicted for 2050? How do you take the increased temperatures that are you predicted for 2050? And how do you as a utility company take it and change your specification today, change maybe what your maintenance practice um, is today, so that you can account for what's going to happen in, in 2050. And that question becomes increasingly important
1: as we're at, on the cusp of, of spending now massive amounts of money. Absolutely,
0: because all the assets we put in, they last for a long period of time, and they, they, they actually our reliance on them gets more and more dependent. It's, it's Transmission lines are interesting things. When you put them in, You actually don't use them to their full extent for the first few years because you're using them for a future load and they just get more and more and more used. And they also get used in ways that they weren't predicted to be used. You know, if 50 years ago, you didn't predict it was going to be loaded to that level.
1: Give us some concrete and possibly dramatic examples of what your research is showing what we'll need for 2050
0: and what are some of the specs you're coming up with. Well, I'll give you an example. It's not essentially always that obvious. We've been looking at what the hottest day and the slowest wind will be um, in in Texas in 2050. And realizing that it means that the rating of the overhead lines will probably be down between seven to fifteen percent. Because you know, the rating of our lines, we base it on what is the hottest day and what is the lowest wind speed. Well, if we have extreme days in, in Texas, in the Houston area, actually, in this case, um, which are much lower in 2050 than they are now from a wind speed point of view and much higher from a temperature point of view, the rating of the lines are going to have to be derated by 7 to 15%. And so we should be building our lines today saying, you know what? We need to put, add that 7 to 15% so that we can use we can have it available to us in 2050. And so it's, it's, I know it's quite an extreme example, um, it, and, and it's not like uh, you, you're probably expecting hurricanes and tornadoes. Um, so it's a little bit different, but it's very concrete and it's very real in, in, in what we're finding.
1: And, and if you build towards that day in, in August 2050, Yes. Uh, What what capability does that give you in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah,
0: where you have this extra fat, call it, on the top, this extra headroom where you can use it for extra flexibility. Um, you could use it um, to enable you to build other lines you know to so delay projects that you needed to build you, you It could help you with that as well so Marty, i'd never thought of that as a, as an opportunity in the in the short term where, where you get where, where you're far going towards the long term and that's a really good thought. I appreciate that
1: well that's why we want you to continue to listen to grid talk to get more ideas <laughs> definitely so you are uh, Overseas centers in Charlotte and in Lenox, um, Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, t- talk about a little bit about give us a flavor of the work being done there and why the industry should be excited and paying attention.
0: You know, so firstly, Lenox is is one of the national wonders of of the United States. It, it was it was built in the 60s, um, and it was built to help design the transmission lines we have today. It's the most amazing place. And it's an outdoor high voltage laboratory where we design lines. And if I give you a good example, over the last few years, in the, in the last decade, we helped AEP um, develop, design, test um, their new bold structure. I don't know if you've seen that bold structure, which is much shorter than a normal 345 kV line and has higher power flow. And without that lab doing that high voltage testing, we would never have been able to enable that. Um, to, be, to be done, and it was a fantastic effort over five years of teaming between EPRI and AEP, and and it's this out volt, out, outdoor high voltage that does simulates lightning and and voltages up to you know almost two megavolts and switching surges and everything you could imagine. Um, also in Linux, um, we we're designing the distribution structures of the future, and we have a, a site where we we actually impact distribution lines. With, with simulated trees so that we can see how they'll react so that the poles don't break, but the insulators just snap or the cross arms snap that speeds up recovery. And 10 utilities are actually implementing those um, new designs today. So it's the most fantastic place.
1: And do you have robotic squirrels or trained squirrels that you can uh, test their interference
0: we actually we, we have we don't use robotic squirrels, but we have little cages that we have made look like squirrels and actually look like humans, and we put in the electric field to simulate them. So, so um, we 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 we, <laughs> we, we call the, the the mannequin, which is the human, we call him Chicken Charlie because he's made out of chicken wire and he looks like a like a chicken Charlie. Okay, um, give, give my best to Chicken Charlie. I, I definitely will. Um, in Charlotte, we we have t- um, new. Uh, there, there is is more about underground cables and sensor development, um, and um, one of the exciting things we've done, we're doing in Charlotte, is you know in our big cities like New York and and um, Chicago, our, our cables are in in, in uh, are in pipes filled with oil at two hundred psi, and we really want to be put the new types of cables, plastic cables, we call them XLPE cables and get rid of the oil out of the ground. And we haven't been able to do that until recently. Um, and EPRI's just patented and working with Southwire to actually have a cable that will fit inside those existing pipes that has no oil. And so it's going to be much better for the environment. And so, Marty, if you ever can come to Lenox, and if you ever can come to Charlotte, there's so much to show you, um, we'd love you to come. Okay. So, So basically, are you looking to put, more
1: underground pipes into possibly abandoned oil pipelines? What's the relevance
0: of that? We're we're looking to take the oil cable, the cables that are in the pipes at the moment in New York City, Chicago, Birmingham, Alabama, take those existing cables out, flush the oil out, and put cables in that are basically, we call them cross-linked polyethylene, but they're cables with plastic, you you know, in terms of the insulation put them in and have the same amount of of capacity um, as you had with the oil. Because the oil is a really good thermal conductor as well as a a really good insulator.
1: Just really quickly, one of the arguments uh, for undergrounding is greater resilience in terms of of a lot of weather problems. Yes. Do you see a possible breakthrough against the main
0: hurdle, which is cost? Is there a way to get the cost down? I would say the main hurdle for cost is really is mainly in the distribution space. Is that, that I'll put that as the main as the main hurdle in distribution space. And um, haven't seen any large breakthroughs. EPRI's been trying quite a few breakthroughs for years, but we haven't found anything that will break the cost. And we're actually going to more of an innovative approach now, where we for the last year or so, where we're trying to get, you know, startups innovative hubs to come up with solutions and for us to evaluate them rather than using the five experts that have been trying for the last 20 years, rather crowdsource maybe the solution or use the market to come up with the solution, Monty. Um, For transmission cables, although cost is a big issue, the real issue is for AC cables, um, you know, you can't go much more than 30 miles. Um, because of the impedance the, the inductance of the cable and the capacitance of the cable, and so you have to you would have to use DC cables and I think so that the limiting factor in AC cables is more distance than anything else all right okay then construction cost, although construction costs not far behind so my last question to you is uh,
1: traditionally the, there has been the observation that utilities as an industry Spend a smaller share in R&D than most sectors, uh, dramatically smaller. And EPRI was uh, created, I believe, to address that or help address that. What's your sense of the moment we're in right now with all the spending coming in terms of EPRI's role,
0: what it's been historically and where it might go in the future? So, you know. Uh, one of the interesting little factoids that I've heard is we, we uh, you know, we spend less on electric power research in the United States than we do on researching new dog foods, and you, so you can actually th- th- that statistic is is out there somewhere. Um, so which is which is very interesting. I think we're at a historical moment, and we need to build back better. All right, we we, we don't need to build back with the same stuff that we designed in the '70s and '80s, and there's a, there's a definitely an opportunity there. For us to do it, EPRI is really well positioned, being so collaborative with so many utilities in the United States, being a member, but also internationally. A third of our members are international, and that experience and expertise that they share with us, that they contribute in the collaboration, I think is going to make a huge difference. So we're exceptionally well positioned, and I think collaboration is king. You know, to to, to really solve this, we it doesn't matter how smart this you are. No one person can solve this. And so collaboratively is how we need to do it. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, it's a pleasure. And, Marty, I appreciate all of your leadership with this podcast. It's fantastic. Thank
1: you. We've been talking with Andrew Phillips, who's Vice President of Transmission and Distribution Infrastructure with the EPRI Electric Power Research Institute. Thank you for listening to Grid Talk. Please send us your feedback or questions. To at NREL.gov. We encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information or subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov.
0: Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.